Let's pray together. Lord, before I lift up, we lift up some specifics about how we spend these next few minutes. We want to pray for another church in our community and pray for um, the pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Van Sickle Baptist Church. Um, Lifting up Roger and Judy Ratliff, thinking about the many years of ministry that Roger has had in this community. Lord, I am thankful for his faithfulness. I'm thankful, too, that as he has spent many years ministering to the bride at Van Sickle and um, preaching and shepherding, that, Lord, he has also been caring for his wife and her sickness, uh, for Judy. I'm thankful that he has um, served well in those two loves for two brides. Lord, I pray for Roger as he is ministering to and caring for Judy, that it'll be something that will... um, move Van Sickle to come alongside Roger as he ministers to the bride at Van Sickle, that he's not alone in that. I am burdened, deeply burdened for single pastor churches and aching for a guy like Roger um, doing this by himself for so long, Lord. I just pray that in his wife's sickness that you will use that to broaden the base of leadership at Van Sickle and that The kingdom will be advanced, your name will be made much of, your fame and renown will be enjoyed through the ministry of Van Sickle, Um, even as a man may be um, less obvious and may be less at the helm, um, that Christ is ultimately at the helm. Whatever way that we can lift up Van Sickle, Lord, I pray that we we will be faithful to do that as we're doing it right now. I pray that As we can cheer for your work in and through that church, Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful to do that. As we know friends or family members or neighbors that worship uh, with Van Sickle and are part of that body, Lord, I pray that we can encourage them and let them know that we are teammates and brothers and sisters and we want your greatness through that ministry. Um, Lord, we are thankful for them. Two, this morning, we want to lift up little Micah Keeling, um, praying for his healing and his recovery. And um, even before he has the ability to know it, Lord, I pray that someday the story will be told that he's part of a people and that a people came alongside as you brought healing to his little body, that a church body and a church family rallied around him and ministered to him responsibly, uh, wonderfully. It's been a, a beautiful thing to see, Lord. I'm thankful that you have led us to be part of a church family that's so attentive to one another. Uh, we're thankful for that. We pray for continued healing. Um, they'll be home soon. Lord, in, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I'm burdened for how we spend so much of our time and effort and thought. And I'm heartbroken at how much, um, how much time I spend thinking about really pretty temporal things, temporary blessings. Lord, I pray as a result of how we spend these next few minutes and how we've spent the last two Sundays that you will build into me and build into this people, build into our families and life groups a real attentiveness and an awareness of the vast, immeasurable, infinite blessings that you have already blessed us with. I beg for that this morning, that those things will come into focus that people will leave here this morning, maybe with the same problem that they walked in here with, 
but with a different lens. And that that will be fueled by worship. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes some bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and he's satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Isaiah says, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Understand, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked some bread on its coals. I roasted some meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Isaiah says of this worshiper, he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? I was reading this week just my daily Bible reading, the McShane Bible reading guide, and I was reading that passage, Isaiah 44. And I've read it before thinking about idolatry. It's a fitting passage dealing with idolatry, but something that I recognize for the first time, maybe because I'm studying in Ephesians, if you'd like to turn now, it's where we actually are in Ephesians 1. I read it with a new lens here and saw that this guy, realized this guy, as much as he's shaping a chunk of wood that he picked out in the forest into an idol and bowing down and worshiping it, he is also wildly satisfied with very temporal things. He bakes some bread, warms himself. He's satisfied with the meat that he's roasted. He warms himself with a fire and says, I am warm. I've seen the fire. Aha. I looked at this guy and I said, man, this guy, this idolater is so satisfied with temporal, temporary things. I wonder if that goes with idolatry. Being satisfied with what's right here, right now. I want to ask you this question this morning before we continue our journey in Ephesians 1. 
Do you ever consider anything more than the bread and the warm fires in your life? This guy's obviously thankful for those things. He's quite satisfied in them even. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. I can love bread with the best of them. But it stops at the ceiling. It stops once the meal is finished. This guy is living in a temporary context, making idols of his own. Do you, though, worshiping a living God that's not fashioned by human hands, ever think on, are satisfied with, ever say, aha, now that is a blessing about something that's beyond a meal or a house or a day of good health our AC that works, amen, <laughs> all those things are fine and good, but do you ever move beyond that to consider the vast, spiritual, eternal blessings that you, as a believer in Christ, swim in? Or could we be like this guy living in the temporary? My goal for this Sunday and the last Two is and has been and will be that this little series of sermons that we're considering last two Sundays, this Sunday, and the last Sunday will be a few weeks from now, will be something that will equip us to rattle off blessings that last beyond digestion. To rattle off blessings that last beyond the ceiling, that last beyond the coals, that we'll do more as a people than just feed on ashes like the idolater that will be fueled by spiritual eternal blessings they're gobs of them here in chapter one and they're wonderful wonderful these are blessings that outlive these are blessings that outmatter even the most wonderful blessings we will have or have in this lifetime you understand why Paul I think is overwhelmed gushing this sentence out that his scribe must have been wanting to say, Paul, breathe, stop and breathe, as he's trying to write this down, this, this cascade of truth, this long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. He's overwhelmed with these spiritual blessings. He's got no physical blessings. He's in prison. And he's writing to a people that are living under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire and right in the shadow of the synagogue. And he's writing about spiritual blessings, things that endure. We're going to pick up in verse 3, and we're going to move this morning through um, verse 11 or 12 or so. I think I have a plan. Actually, I cut the sermon in half this morning. You'd be really uh, delighted to hear that, maybe. You might be disappointed, but know that you're getting the second half. You're just not going to get it in this one sitting. We're going to move through verse 12 today. And we're going to pick up as we move. I'm just going to take a moment and just point out some of the things that we've already had the chance to consider in these last two Sundays. And then this morning, we have a one-point sermon. One-point sermon. We're going to massage it to death. We're going to really enjoy it together. Starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. This is an aorist tense Greek verb. It is equated to, could be equated to a past tense event for us. God has blessed us already. 
Whatever blessings you feel like you need, whatever blessings you feel like you want, that's all fine and good, but you as a Christian must know that you have already been blessed with durable gobs of them, wonderful, durable blessings. And in fact, this list here in chapter 1 is exhaustive because he says every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's in verse 4 through 4 and 5, he gives us the first of those spiritual blessings and has to do primarily this one with the Father's work. In verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The first spiritual blessing at the top of the list here on Paul's list of spiritual blessings has to do with the Father's choice and the Father's predestination. This is something to be celebrated and treasured. It's not we can enjoy together based on anyone's merit. It's not based on anyone's performance. It's not even based on anyone's aptitude. Thank the good Lord. But based only, as it says here, on the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, giving something to people, things, something wonderful that they don't deserve is a beautiful picture of grace. Now we continue in verse 7 with the first of two things that we considered last week that we see from Christ. In him, is speaking of Christ here in the beginning of verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We considered last week the first of two points had to do with what we have in Christ is redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses. What we have in Christ is we are like a bunch of hostages that have been ransomed, and the ransom price was warm, hemoglobin-carrying, divine, holy blood, and that blood of Jesus Christ alone. And that it's the only detergent, detergent for the forgiveness and cleansing of sin. Last week we considered the first point that we are a bunch, a bunch of Christians, hostages ransomed, enjoying an eternal version of the year of Jubilee. And then continuing in verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. The second thing that we considered last week is that in Christ, we have been given together. We, it doesn't rest on any one person, but together the church has been given divine wisdom and insight into the Father's goodwill because of Christ's work and to make sense of Christ's work. The church has been given the wisdom of Solomon to together make sense of God's will. Now today we're going to move into the third thing that we see and receive in Christ from this passage. But first I want to point uh, something out to you. I want to call something to your attention in verse 10, the passage I just read in Ephesians 1. 
which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Pay attention to this phrase. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now that phrase alone, we could spend an entire Sunday on that phrase alone. And I'm tempted to do it. And I might yet do that before we move on from Ephesians 1, just because it's so wonderful. But I'm not going to preach that phrase this morning. I'm going to illustrate it with where Paul goes this morning in those next verses. Of uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on the earth. It sounds a little bit mysterious, maybe. I read a passage last week that beautifully illustrated the glorious work of prepositions and how they point us toward what we have in Christ. Listen to this passage from Colossians 1.16, and I want you to pay attention to the last preposition. It's going to bump into where we're going in these next few minutes. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, this would be by Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Now pay attention to this next preposition. And for him. That's hinting at where we're going in these next few minutes in verses 11, 11 and 12 of Ephesians 1. Listen to this passage. In him, this would be Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I'm about to wipe that phrasing out. So don't, don't put too much, uh, don't, don't let that solidify that thought because we're about to completely undo that. But I want you to grab hold of that word inheritance. For in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, I told you don't get too fixated on that phrase because here's where I'm going in these next few minutes. Remember, it's a one-point sermon. The third thing that we have in Christ is that we in Christ are God's inheritance. Now, if you're paying attention, you just looked at what we just read, and it doesn't read that way at all. But I'm going to show you why we're going, the direction we're going. In Christ, we are God's inheritance. That's the one single amazing point this morning. In Christ, we are God's inheritance. Now, our ESV says, the Bible that you have in front of you, if you grab the Pew Bible, many of you carry an ESV, You may have some other version, but likely it reads something like this. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. I sent out an email to you this week um, that I encourage you to read if you hadn't had a chance to read that. If you're visiting this morning, we can get that email out to you if you touch base with uh, Aaron Adele this week, my assistant. The title of the email is, What It Says Isn't Always What It's Saying. As a bunch of Christians that are carrying around our Bibles, we need to realize that what it says isn't always what it's saying and that we have to use our noggin to connect context to what it's actually saying. And what it says here is not, as all, not at all what it's saying. What it says here is that in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I want to say there is good argument to read it that way. There's a better argument to read it how we're going to consider it, though. 
But there is good argument to read it as our translations read. I want you to trust your translations and know that they're good translations. What you have in your lap is something you can trust. There's great argument that we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. For we, after all, it says here, have been adopted into his family with full rights and privileges to include being co-heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ. In fact, a few verses later in verse 14, it says as much. Okay? I don't want to diminish the reality that in Christ we have an inheritance, but that's not what's going on here, and it's worth spending an entire Sunday morning showing you the glorious truth of seeing it and reading it and understanding it the other way, in that in Christ we are God's inheritance. See, verse 11 has to be taken with context of the rest of our Bibles Turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe you're part of a, maybe you've been to a church or you've never been to a church before where you have folks encouraging you turn, encouraging you to turn to other passages. I'm about to go kind of semi-Puritan on you right now. If I was going to go full-on Puritan, I would share about 40 passages of Scripture with you and I'd have you look at every single one of them. But I'm going semi-Puritan and I'm going to have you look at about six or seven passages. It, I haven't counted them. They may be more. But it's not going to hurt you. I promise you. You're going to be fine. And you'll actually get a little more familiar with your Bible as you turn to different passages. But I want you to start in the book of Deuteronomy first. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context. Deuteronomy was written by Moses before the nation of Israel goes into the promised land. By this point, the nation of Israel has become the nation of Israel in the fiery furnace of Egypt. 400 years of slavery, not all of them enslaved, but at least for a large portion of that, they're enslaved in Egypt. God, through the plagues, the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues, and at Moses' leadership, leads his people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They go to uh, Sinai. They receive the law. They spend 40 years on a long funeral procession where the first... um, Group of the oldest, the adults, all die, and nobody except Caleb and Joshua goes over into the promised land. And here we are in Deuteronomy, where Moses is sort of retelling the story 40 years later. Moses is, we don't know if he's on Nebo, on top of Nebo. Um, some years ago, I was on Nebo with Jeff Simmons and Brad Cardwell. I think Lance Shoemaker was with us. We're on, you may not have been there. We're on Nebo looking over into the promised land. It's a pretty awesome experience thinking about this is where Deuteronomy happened. That's the context for what's going on here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. Moses is retelling the story of a people so that they would have this fresh in their minds and their hearts as they go over into the promised land and begin the conquest. And let's see the sort of things that Moses is wanting to remind them of. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. It's in a context that's dealing with idolatry, where idolatry of these foreign peoples, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all these ites, parasites, all these guys don't worship their gods. That's the context for what he's about to say here in verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and he's brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. You could fairly summarize that 
If you're sitting with your family and you're saying, kids, let me just tell you what that said. See, God ransomed a people out of Egypt, and he's calling them his inheritance. That sounds a lot like Ephesians 1, doesn't it? We were redeemed and ransomed by the warm hemoglobin-carrying blood, divine, holy blood of Jesus Christ. Ransomed. It's a beautiful illustration here. In order to, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Now, turn over a few chapters to chapter 6. Beautiful passage here dealing with God's choosing an unlikely, undeserving people. I usually begin reading in verse 7, but if you begin reading in verse 6, listen to what unfolds here. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He's, he's speaking to a people that are about to go in the promised land. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That's another way of saying so that they will be his inheritance. They will be his heritage out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He could have picked the Egyptians. He could have picked the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites. But instead, he set his love on Israel. And it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. You were the foolish things that will confound the wise. You were the least likely to succeed. This sounds like Jesus calling tax collectors and sinners, doesn't it? It sounds sort of familiar. God setting his love on Israel for the purpose of them being his possession, his inheritance, his heritage. The three things you see going together right here that you see in Ephesians 1, if you're paying attention, is you see God's choice, you see God's redemption, and you see God taking possession of a people. Now, the next one is a few chapters over. In verse 14, we're going to come back to verse 9, but first, chapter 14, or we'll come back to chapter 9. Speaking of unclean and clean food, in verse 2, he says, You are people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you. You're going to see these ingredients going together. God's choice to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now turn over to chapter 9. Remember, I'm going semi-Puritan, so you can hang with some semi-Puritan. Puritans were just like, man, you read a Puritan book and you're like, okay, like a machine gun of proof. Just go, 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 go. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go like a few sniper rounds. Deuteronomy 9, 26, listen to this. This is Moses reminding them about the golden calf event. Remember that, where Moses goes up the mountain to get the law, and the people get sort of bored, and they're like, hey, Aaron, would you make us an idol that we can worship? He says, okay, give me your earrings and your bracelets and all that kind of stuff, and he fashions a golden calf, and they're dancing around the fire, worshiping the golden calf like a bunch of hooligans when Moses come back, comes back down the mountain. That story. Forty years later, Moses is retelling the story. I can't imagine that some of them weren't cringing, like, Moses, please don't retell that story. That was a pretty dark moment. But here's what he says in verse 26. I prayed to the Lord. Moses is interceding for this people. He says, O Lord God, do not destroy your people. Do not destroy 
your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Look at verse 29. For they are your people. They are your heritage. You chose them. You redeemed them. They're your heritage. They're your people, your inheritance. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 1. Now, turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Those are just some samplings. There are many other passages that I didn't read that I'm sparing you of, not because I think they would, that you would, you would not like them, but because they're not, they're not necessary. I'm, I'm, I just want to give you some evidence for a retranslation. If we're going to depart from the scripture as it reads in your lap, I want you to see that I'm not going freestyle here. I hope you want to see that from me. That your pastor and your preacher is not going freestyle trying to make a point and do some gymnastics because he thinks it might be sexy. I won't do that. I want to prove it to you. Psalm 33. This is our song book, okay? First of all, we looked at our law book, or at least one of them in Deuteronomy. Now let's t- t- look, take a, just a brief look in a song book and see what the message might be in a song book. In Psalm number 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That word means as his inheritance. Blessed are those people. Happy are those people that he has chosen as his inheritance. It sounds very familiar to the way that we're handling this passage, that in Christ we are God's inheritance. Now turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Just a few more passages. And this is the only section of the sermon where I really have you turning a few paces. So you can, you can hang. You're doing good. 1 Kings 8. We're fast forwarding here about 500 years. Okay, we're moving into what I'm calling the Chronicles this is not the book Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, because I told you the reference is First Kings. But we're moving to that period of the Chronicles of the Kings, sort of the stories of the Kings. Five hundred or so years later is where we're fast forwarding, from where Moses reminded the people of those things from Nebo. Okay, we're fast forwarding here to the dedication of the temple. A pretty profound moment, wouldn't you think? I mean, the temple's a big deal. Solomon's getting to build a temple, and here's what Solomon says on the day that he's dedicating the temple in 1 Kings 8, verse 51. For they are your people, your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt, i.e. redeemed and ransomed from the midst of the iron furnace. This has got to be starting to sound familiar to you. Blessed is the nation... It's chosen by and redeemed and owned by God. Now, two more passages. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. From the Deuteronomy context, we fast-forwarded about 500 years to Solomon's dedication of the temple. And now we're fast-forwarding about 300 years or so to Isaiah's context. That's a big old chunk of time. That's a big chunk of the story. 
Okay? Remember, I'm giving you evidence that we're not going to freestyle this morning. Isaiah, Isaiah 43. I'm going to read some excerpts from 43 because it's just that good. What's going on in this setting in Isaiah is the nation of Israel at this point, Judah specifically, is going into exile in Babylon. Okay? Isaiah is prophesying about some events that are going to take place. And they're going into exile, and this is what it says in, verse, or in chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, he can do that. He's the potter. He shaped them. He formed them. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Sound familiar? And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego really loving that passage. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. I give Cush and Seba in exchange for you. You are hostages, but I'm going to ransom you. I'm going to redeem you because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Look at verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Look over at verse 19. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the deserts. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Man, a big part of this story has to do with God reinforcing over hundreds of years through many mouthpieces that you are mine. You are my inheritance. You belong to me. Here's the last passage I'll have you turn to in Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm going to read a few verses here beginning in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down. And worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. They have to be carried for, oh, they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Look at verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he 
This God that's not fashioned by human hands, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from the storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. There's a theme cover to cover. It's in the minor prophets later. It's in the major prophets here. It's in the song books. It's in the law. It's in the chronicles. A theme of God's choice, God's deliverance, his redemption, and God's inheritance of his people and the wonderful, scandalous blessedness of being that people. Ephesians 1 outlines the rest of our Bible. It outlines the rest of our Bible. And what follows and flows so nicely is the reality that in Christ, we are God's inheritance. Now go back to Ephesians 1. The trick here that's challenging, it's hard to do when we're, you know, the translators are doing their work. They're translating their original language, but they're not dealing with context. They're not dealing with the full council that we just did. Remember, semi-Puritan, it wasn't even all the way Puritan. They're not dealing with those things, and they shouldn't. They're translators. They're not doing what I'm doing, the work of the preacher or the work of the commentator building in context. But we, though, can handle this contextually, and here are a few thoughts. The trick in making sense of this passage here is to understand, are we dealing with this verb, this inheritance, as uh, we have inherited in the active sense, or passively, we have been made an inheritance? And I'm opting for the last one. And here are some more reasons why, very briefly. First, if, if, if this gobs of evidence of storyline, this context is not enough for you, here are some additional thoughts. It fits nicely with being predestined and chosen. Remember the work of the Father in verse 4 and 5. That he's going to predestine is going to fit nicely with the reality that he's the prime mover behind the verbs and he's the prime mover behind this inheritance verb. That he is making us an inheritance. It fits nicely there. It's like you determine your investments for retirement if they're not determined for you. You paid for them, and they are yours. Secondly, the participle after this phrase of having been predestined makes more sense. See, predestination is mentioned in verse 4 and 5, but it's also mentioned later in this passage that we're looking at this morning in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance that we're reading a different way. In Christ we are God's inheritance. Having been predestined. That having been predestined makes more sense that the believer is predestined as God's possession than that the believer has predestined his own self as a possession. It doesn't even make sense to read it that way. And third and last, it would be redundant for Paul to list our redemption 
our forgiveness, the seal of the Holy Spirit later in this passage, and then separately to refer to our inheritance without being redundant. If he's talking about our inheritance as one of the spiritual blessings, it would be redundant because that's what he's already done. All those other things are inheritance. He's adding something to the list of spiritual blessings here. He's not being redundant. He seems to be making the point that he's adding to this list that we are God's inheritance. Not only do believers possess redemption, forgiveness, and the seal of the Holy Spirit, but God possesses us because of all that he's given us. Now, just a a brief thought before I share a couple of passages from the New Testament. You can turn to Acts chapter 20 if you're just sitting idle while I'm sharing this thought with you. If so far in the sermon you're like, man, this is just really, it seems like a bunch of data. It seems like a bunch of information. And maybe you're here for the first time and you're not, you have, you're not accustomed to this, this sort of preaching. Or maybe, maybe you are and you're still not following. Hang with me because this application for this one single point that I'm making this morning is huge. I'm just, I'm just trying to keep you engaged because if you can go the distance just for the next few minutes, the application will relate to your den, your Tuesday, your marriage, your parenting, your life in every way. That's a big promise. But I promise you I'm going to follow through on it because God's going to follow through on it. Now, This concept of us belonging to God, of us being God's inheritance, may be new to you, but it's not new to our New Testaments either. I want to show you just three passages in our New Testaments, and then we're going to apply this one point for the morning. The first is in Acts chapter 20. Paul has not been able to make his third trip to Ephesus. It's it's not ironic. It's not coinkadink that here we are dealing with Ephesians again. I don't think it's at all coincidence. Paul hasn't been able to make his third trip to Ephesus. He's having to meet the Ephesian elders in Miletus. And at this point, maybe he's on a ship that's too big to get into the harbor. Remember I shared on that first Sunday dealing with Ephesus that the the harbor was silted over, so only really shallow draft ships could get in. We don't know why, but he's meeting the elders at Miletus. And he's speaking to these Ephesian elders that he spent maybe a total of about three years or so with by this point. And here in verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves, Ephesian elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, i.e. the people of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's not the only snapshot, but it's one. He's speaking to the Ephesian church, these guys that are supposed to be leading this church that he's going to write this letter to later. And he's reminding them, they're not yours. They're his. They're not even themselves. They're God's. Pay careful attention to that flock, for God obtained that flock with his own blood. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus. Chapter 2. These are the last two passages I'm going to have you turn to this morning. Beginning in verse 13. I'll begin in verse 11 for the sake of context and give you time to turn there. 
For the grace of God, it's interesting that here Paul, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders over there, the guys that are leading the Ephesian church. And here he's speaking to Titus, who's also leading a church, that he's speaking to the leadership of the church and reminding them who those people belong to. Maybe so they can remind the people who they belong to. That's pretty cool. Because here 2,000 years later, that's what I'm doing this morning, reminding you who you belong to. Here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to... That's a great example that it's not always... What it says is not always what it's saying. Contextually, this is dealing with those who are trusting Christ by faith. Salvation for them. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Whose are you? You're God's. You belong to God. You belong to Christ in this context. And here's the last one. This will likely be familiar in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It must have struck a note of irony for Peter the fisherman to be writing these words. Like Israel enjoying the reality that they are chosen. The likes of Israel. The likes of Peter is right, as he's writing these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you, he's writing to believers all over the Roman Empire. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people belonging, possession. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What I want you to see and understand and see in your list of spiritual blessings, the things that are bigger than feeding on ashes, the things that will take you beyond the ceiling, beyond that meal, the digestion of that meal, beyond that job that you might lose, beyond that marriage that you might lose, is adding to and understanding your spiritual blessings on your list is the reality that you belong to God. You are his inheritance in Christ. That is seriously good news. And the crazy thing for me, as I'm preaching this this morning, I've never preached this. I've been doing this 12 years. I've been a Christian since I was six years old. Why am I just now engaging to this wonderful, glorious reality that I belong to God, that I am his inheritance, that we, the church, are his inheritance? I'm about to show you why that's really, really cool. But first, let me take you back to this passage I read in verse 10. The first place I took you this morning, right after the story of the craftsman, the carpenter. In verse 10, this summing up of all things in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace, excuse me, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in in heaven and things on earth. That's a big, big phrase. And at least in part, that is defined by the reality That in him, he is redeeming his chosen inheritance. Those that are already with him in heaven and those that are on the earth, that's us. That's the summing up of all things in Christ. We are at least a portion of that. 
that in Christ, he gets what he's invested. Now, so what? What does it mean for Tuesday? I made you some big promises. What does it mean for Tuesday and den and relationships and marriage and life that we are his inheritance first? It should help you recognize who you are and whose you are. Hopefully this relentless passage after passage after passage this morning has built into you maybe like, oh, that was more than I needed. Where you walk, go, walk away realizing, I at least now know not only who I am, but whose I am. See, so much of Christianity focuses on what you get out of this whole deal. Man, so much of preaching, so much of teaching, so much of songwriting, much to my chagrin, and I'm not even just talking contemporary songwriting. I'm going back to the old hymns, looking for old hymns that, that celebrate the reality that we are God's inheritance. And man, I can't find them. I can't find them. Passage after passage after passage after passage. Blessed is the nation whose God has chosen him. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord who's chosen him as his inheritance. Blessed is the nation. Okay, let's sing about the reality. I can't find it. I sure can't find it, can't find it in contemporary songwriting. Because it's all about what we get out of the deal. It's all about our inheritance. Missing the more foundational, wonderful truth is that we are his inheritance. What should undergird our understanding of faith is that we are his. We build that into our little kids. Some of the little kids in this room or some of you that are now grown up or growing up, you've, been, you've had it invested in you to, from your earliest days here at Crosspoint. Who made you? Some of you could spout it off. God made me. What else did God make? He made all things. Well, why did he make you? For his own glory. You are his. Yes, he's yours. But more importantly, you are his. Man, that's foundational. It should be foundational to our understanding as Christians, seeing what we are, seeing who we are, seeing whose we are, will influence how we move more than anything else, more than any other sermon, any other list of don't do's or do's, any other list of oughtas or ought notas. Understanding who you are and whose you are will influence you more than any of those other things. Dads and moms, I want you to think about this kind of conversation that you have with your kids. Let's say you have a young man in your house. And he's at that age where he's got internet, he's got a cell phone, he's got a computer. And you know the kind of trash that he could get into. Maybe he's in a context in school or wherever. He's heading off to college and you're like, man, the kind of stuff they could get into. You can send them off with a bunch of oughtas and ought notas. You can send them off with a bunch of do's and don'ts. And that may or may not be effective. But I'm going I'm to make you a promise of something that will be so much more effective. Is building into them, helping them realize who they are and whose they are. It's not, son, we don't look at porn because God doesn't want us to do that. It's, son, we don't look at porn because that's not who we are. That's not whose we are. 
It's not in keeping with our identity as a blood-bought people of God, as the inheritance of God. Do you see how wonderful this is? How this travels to den, to Tuesday, to workplace, to your whole view of the world, seeing first who made you, God made you. What else did God do? He made all things. And what did he do them for? He made them for his own glory. You are his blood-bought inheritance. Man, that travels All right, I have a really lame illustration, and then I have a good one. I like the lame one enough that I'm going to share it anyway. When I was a kid growing up, I looked online because I couldn't remember when this was made. The Kid Rock videos, there was a Kid Rock video from 1976 about the bill. Those of you, I'm, I'm 47, I forget at times. I, I, Christy and I have to, how old are we? But in 1976, there's this Kid Rock video that's teaching kids and students about a bill, the process that a bill goes through to become a law. It's really good. Some of you should look it up. I mean, it's really good, entertaining. But I was thinking about, you know, the bill in that video is sort of personified. You know, it kind of, it's, it's speaking and dancing and singing. I don't know if it's dancing, but it's singing at least. I'm thinking about, okay, if we are God's inheritance, let's just for a moment think about or personify and inheritance. And inheritance, likely, it might be some property. It might be some investments. Let's personify those investments and in property for a minute and let them take on sort of a, a personality. I would expect that if you could imagine being an investment, like the bill could sing, like you are an investment, that you would want to be a few things. You would want to be diverse enough to withstand market fluctuations, the winds coming and going the breezes in the stock market. You would want to be stable and have some really deep roots. You would want to gain and grow. If you could imagine being an investment, God's inheritance in this case, that's the illustration, that you would want to grow. You would want to mature. If an investment could have a personality, it would want the investor to be pleased with its movement and progress. How about that for a mindset? About why do I want to live a holy life? Why do I want to grow deep roots? Why do I want to be mature? Why do I want to be holy? So that the investor will be happy when he returns and collects on his investment. That's the lame illustration. Here's a good one. The good one comes from the Bible. And it has to do with brides. I had a conversation with Greg Fields last Sunday night. We were talking through the sermon on my back porch, and he was telling me about some articles that he's read that I've since read one of them and in the process of reading the other, where guys making the case that the language of redemption, as much as it has to do with redeeming a hostage or liberating a hostage, it also has to do with paying the bride price for a daughter's young hand, or young daughter's hand, young hand, the rest of her would be young too. Paying the bride price to a father, which fits nicely with the storyline from last week, remember? Satan who? God doesn't know Satan anything. The price is paid to the father. And that bride price that's paid for the bride's hand fits nicely with this picture of the church often being referred to as the bride. The redemption may very well have to do with bride price. That's definitely developed in our Old Testaments. Some very graphically, Ezekiel chapter 16. <laughs> a whole book called Hosea. It's not a beautiful love story. No, know this. If you've ever read Hosea, you're like, Ugh. That's the story, though. 
And that's how it goes of him redeeming the bride. So I want you to imagine here for a moment that you're a bride-to-be. Some of you have been a bride-to-be. Somebody in here might actually be a bride-to-be. And those husbands, you can think about what your bride-to-be was like when you were in that, when you were in that, that betrothal stage or that, um, that, that uh, fiancé stage, whatever that committed-to-marry-each-other stage is called that I can't think of right now. Imagine what that bride is like. Just think for a moment, brides, what were you like? Man, I... I've had the chance to do premarital counseling with a handful of couples as I led them into a marriage ceremony and, and escorted them into marriage, into the covenant ceremony. And man, there's some things that I, I enjoyed seeing in these brides that I'm thinking that really are a nice reflection on what the church should be. You know, a bride, when she's getting ready to get married, one of the big events is picking out a dress. And she really, you know, she wants that dress. To, she wants to be a hammer. She wants to look good. That's a short way of saying it. She wants to look good. She wants that dress to be hot, beautiful, white, flowy, all those things that just form-fitting. Like, man, this is, she is gorgeous. She wants her husband to just fall over dead at her beauty. She's doing some other things, too. She, she's, she's exercising. <laughs> like, she's at the gym wearing that elliptical out, boy. I mean, like, mm -mm, wearing it out because I'm getting married. I want to be fit. I want to be ready for when I'm walking down the aisle. I don't want to look homely in that dress. I want to look good for my groom. She might even be getting a tan. <laughs> I bought, listen, I've, I've done enough of them before where I'm, I'm, I'm doing this marriage counseling, and I start marriage counseling like a couple months before the wedding, and as we get closer to the wedding, she comes in there, the couple comes in there, and she's darker and darker every time she comes in. <laughs> it's crazy. She's going to look good in that dress. She's serious about it. She might lose some weight. Not implying anything. I'm just saying she might. She's gonna get her hair done. I mean, we all know that she wants to look good. She's gonna get her nails done. She probably, even though you can't even see them, she's gonna get her toenails done. There's this attentiveness, this mindset that she wants to look wonderful for her groom. So if for a moment you can imagine that as we are God's inheritance, we are also Christ's betrothal. We are Christ's bride to be. And starting to think like that will help you understand the disposition of the church as we ready ourselves for this wedding day. We want to look good for our husband together corporately. We don't want to be homely. We want to be ready. This concept of ownership or this concept of commitment of who we, whose we are will really help you, will be an impetus for holiness, for purity, so you won't be homely when Christ comes back. This has purchase. Men, some of you guys that are all caught up in pornography, man, this is something that will give you a fresh wind for why you shouldn't be involved in that. It's a fresh wind. It's, it's not who you are. It's not whose you are. You are betrothed. You are readying for wedding day. You should be tanning. Obviously, I'm using metaphor. You should be on that elliptical. You should be written ready for that glorious day. Understanding who you are and whose you are travels There's a phrase that I 
I don't know where it popped into my head. It's, have you ever heard the phrase, cast a Paul? Cast a Paul, P-A-L-L. I don't know where it comes from, but I know what it means. It's like some really bad event that sort of casts a dark shadow or a haze over everything else. I want you to think about that phrase in a positive sense. Not a negative event, but something that's so wonderful, something that's so profound that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. That things that tend to mean so much to you will mean less because of who you are and whose you are. That's my invitation to you to this morning. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that we are yours. I'm so thankful that you chose us, you redeemed us, rescued us, you paid the bride price for us, and it was expensive, and that we are your inheritance, and we are your betrothed bride. God, I pray that those sorts of thoughts this morning will connect to a young man that's about to leave for college. As he's right now formulating, making decision about who he's going to be, that first of all, he knows whose he is. I pray for our young students that are in hard places, maybe at school or in a neighborhood or even maybe at home, that more than anything else, no matter what other kids might say, no matter what other kids expect of them, no matter what, what the standards are or the expectations, that they will know whose they are. God, I pray for that couple that may be struggling in marriage. What a heartbreaking, heartbreaking struggle. Something that should be so beautiful, so beautifully putting on display the relationship between Christ and his church that's just so oppressive and ever there. Lord, I pray that they can enjoy, first of all, as a new fuel and new wind to their marriage, knowing whose they are. God, I pray for an older couple that may be dealing with health issues. That may be thinking about that next step of stepping off into eternity. And all the fear that would likely go along with that, potentially that that will just go away knowing whose they are. God, I pray for a church that we as a people can and will know and remind each other even whose we are. We love you, Lord. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a passage I'd like to share with you for our supper. Let me prepare you for the supper. This supper is for those who are trusting Christ as their Savior and Lord. If you're wanting to do that, you're interested in that, or if not, this supper's not for you. And I'm not being ugly in that. Just know that this is a meal with our God. So if you're not a believer trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then please don't take this meal. If you are, though, I invite you to this meal. I'll share a passage with you from Revelation chapter 19. It's fitting
with the better illustration that I shared this morning. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's fitting this morning as we take the supper that we have a chance to enjoy that we are betrothed, that we are God's inheritance, that we are Christ's bride-to-be, and that we can consider this marriage supper of the Lamb that is yet to be, that will happen at the end of the age, that as we take the supper each week, in many ways what we're doing is we're participating in the rehearsal dinner week after week after week after week, getting ready. We're about to be with him. He's going to come back for us any minute. Let's get ready. It's imminent. As we take and eat, let's enjoy this morning our husband and our God. Let's distribute the elements.